Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. In this Encore episode, I'm going to talk about how it came about that I began representing John Gotti Jr., and that really was the springboard to uh, any success I've had in my career. It really started with that first trial, and you'll hear an incredible beginning, the good luck that I had, and really the great result. I first met John Jr., and I'm going to call him John Jr., even though he's not a John Jr., he's John A. Gotti, his father was John J. Gotti, but for ease of reference, I first met John Jr. after his father's conviction. This was about 1991, I think. I was 26 at the time. His father had just gotten convicted, and John was tasked, and he was the same age as me. John's birthday is a few months before mine. He was tasked with having to find the lawyers to do the appeal, and it's a pretty heavy thing to do. Your father's just gotten convicted. He's going to spend the rest of his life in prison, and you're 26 years old, and you've got to be in charge of hiring the legal team for a pretty massive case. I remember meeting John. It was at the uh, law firm that I was working at the time. We were interviewed to do part of the appeal, and in fact, we did, and I wrote part of it as a, as a kid. But I remember John Jr. being a very scary, intense dude. As I said, he was my age, but he just seemed, I don't know, older, you know, more streetwise, I suppose, obviously. I mean, I had no experience with anything. I just started as a lawyer. And we didn't really talk much. You know, he was, you know, I just felt that this was somebody that was unapproachable. And I was obviously the youngest lawyer in a room full of pretty heavyweight lawyers, Al Krieger, Michael Kennedy. Dennis Reardon from San Francisco was there. Michael Tiger uh, from University of Texas was there. It was a pretty, uh, Tony Cardinale from Boston. It was a pretty intimidating group. Bill Kunstler was there, who couldn't have been nicer to me. And um, one of these days, I'm going to tell the story about what Michael Kennedy, who I was working for at the time, did to Al Krieger in that room. One of the funniest things I've ever seen that no one ever knows. That's something for the uh, lawyers, the experienced lawyers to hear on a later show. Anyway, the appeal was done. It was argued. And the next time I saw John was in a attorney client room in a jail in Valhalla, New York. It was after he was arrested in 1998. He was arrested. It was a, a RICO case in, in federal court in Westchester, New York on charges, including extorting the topless bar scores in Manhattan. Dozens of defendants were charged. And at the time, I was working with Jerry Shargell when John was, was indicted. And this was a completely different guy. I was shocked that it was the same person. Completely different. He was happy. He was joking. And he was in jail. I, I was shocked that this was the same guy that I had seen in 1991. It was only seven years later. And meeting John, we immediately hit it off. And during that time period, I wrote the bail, one of the bail motions for John to try to get him out. I was working for Jerry at the time and Jerry was his main lawyer. He was in charge. And Jerry, as I've mentioned before, is certainly the most intelligent defense lawyer I've ever met by a mile. They just don't make defense lawyers like this. He knew everything. I mean, he knew every area of law, you know, in my best day, I'm, you know, 10%. I have the knowledge of what's in Jerry's brain. That's how, how smart he was again, a different generation. And I wrote the bail motion, and uh, during that period, I went out on my own. I still rented space from Jerry in his office for a year, but now I was on my own, and because I was working for myself, I wasn't working for John anymore. So I would still see John, though, because you know, he was somebody that I had grown fond of, and we had, we had hit it off, and 
John would come to the office once he got out on bail. Obviously, he was released on bail at some point. And he would come to the office many days a week. And sometimes, you know, he would end up gravitating towards my office. And I ended up seeing him two, three, four times a week. He'd come to the office with the other defendants. They would meet in the big conference room. And again, I wasn't involved. I was doing my own thing. And it was tough. Leaving Jerry where he had all these big cases and all of a sudden, I'm on my own and my cases are not as big except for the times that I'm working with Jerry where he's hiring me to work for him on the cases. It was a little, a little bit of an adjustment period, I suppose, but I ended up seeing John pretty much every day, it seemed. And as I said, we had much in common and incredibly, the two areas were mainly American Indians and boxing. And it just so happened that John had an encyclopedic knowledge of both. And I had a a pretty strong knowledge of both as well. I was a a huge fan of George Custer, not the, the part that he's deemed to be racist, but just him as a general in the Civil War and then as, a, as an Indian fighter after the Civil War. And he would come to my office really just to decompress John and just hang out. And as I said, I really did like him. This was not somebody that I was working for. He wasn't a client anymore. So I think it made it easier for me to just to hang out with him. There was no pressure of a case that he was going to be asking me things. Was I doing this? Was I doing that? None of that happened, the type of stuff you get normally from clients. And sometimes he'd ask me for advice and he trusted me. And as I said, he was being represented by Jerry, who was like my father. I mean, Jerry was probably more of a father to me than my own father. But John knew that if he asked me for advice, I would tell him what I really felt and I wouldn't hide any truth from him, regardless of my relationship with Jerry. So John's getting ready for trial and and Jerry's his lawyer. And as uh, Jerry's working on the case with his associate at the time, it wasn't me, obviously. And one day John comes in and asks me to look at the plea agreement that was offered by the government. And this is like before the trial, like a couple of weeks before. And he didn't want to take it because he felt that he couldn't trust the government, you know, that they weren't going to continue to indict him after this. He didn't want to take a deal and then keep getting indicted again, because that's what they do to Gotti's. That's how it was back then. And you know, until recently, that they wouldn't stop until they got a conviction. They can put you away for life. They had already put away his father. They put away his uncle. Soon thereafter, they were going to put away his other uncle for life. And I was surprised, frankly, that he would even consider a plea deal because of it. But John's smart. And more importantly, he was experienced. He'd been through so much with his father and his uncles and all their cases. And he looked at every possible angle. He was not tied to any certain strategy of just having to go to trial. So he showed me the plea agreement, the draft, and asked me if he thought that the deal would end any efforts to indict him in the future. And I looked at it and I didn't feel that it really was going to do that. I mean, it had some helpful language, but of course the government can't have their hands tied. You can't tie them to not indict for any known or unknown crimes at the time they uh, offer a plea agreement. There's just no way. So you know, I saw that there was helpful language, but in my mind and heart, I knew that this was not going to stop the government from going after him again. So I had a choice to make, you know, what am I going to do? I didn't want to hurt Jerry. As I said, I mean, Jerry is probably the most, not probably, is definitely the most important influence in, in my legal career. Jerry gave me everything I have is largely because of Jerry. And that was true back in 1999. And it's really true today. And to his credit, Jerry never said that there was a 100% chance that, that this was going to be John's last case that he ever had. 
there were different districts that could charge him, you know, and as I said, known and unknown crimes. It wasn't like this stopped them from indicting him for anything that they knew about. Simply put, they wanted him, they were going to get him again. But I had to be honest with John and he had become my friend and I couldn't lead him astray. So I told him what I thought. Jerry was in the next office, but I had to tell him the truth. I didn't think that the plea deal would provide the peace that he wanted. It just couldn't. And he listened, understood. He took the deal anyway, literally on the eve of trial, like a day or two before, if I recall. And he was hopeful and he, he knew he wasn't certain the, the, not to be indicted, but he was hopeful, but he was frustrated. You know, sometimes non-lawyers don't really understand how everything works a hundred percent. And I guess he wanted a black and white answer and it just didn't exist. And a couple of months later, he left uh, to begin his 77-month sentence. Now, it wasn't a full 77 because he had spent some time in jail before he had gotten out on bail, and you only have to do 85% of the time anyway. So he had about five years or so left. But he told me one thing before he left, one thing when he said goodbye to me, and I'll never forget it. It's one of those things that's burned into my memory forever. If I ever get pinched again, I'm hiring a guy like you, a young guy like you. That's what he said. And I listened and I'm like, eh, you know, what is that? It's, am I going to hold him to that? I don't know. You know, it's, but he seemed sincere and John's a sincere guy. He's all sorts of things, but one thing he is, is he's sincere. And it was no disrespect to Jerry, who was like a father figure to John as well, because he represented his father. But I think he felt he needed someone he could relate to better. And, you know, he said that to me. And again, it was, could have been empty words and off to jail he went. Four years passed or so, and then I started reading in, in the newspapers that John was being investigated for the shooting of radio host Curtis Sliwa. Sliwa had disrespected John's father on the, radio, on the radio, on air, and the government claimed that John Gotti Jr. had arranged for Sliwa to be kidnapped and shot in the back of a cab in New York City. Actually, I think if the, the allegations were that he wasn't supposed to be shot, but a shooting happened. Nevertheless, you know, sometimes that can happen when you have a really obnoxious, well, whatever that's for another day, any, anyway. So I receive a phone call out of the blue from Vicki Gotti and that's John's sister. She was the one that had that show growing up a Gotti. And I had known Victoria for years by then. She had come to me when her then husband, Carmine Agnello had gotten indicted along with a bunch of other defendants and had asked me to help put together a team of lawyers to represent them. And this was like in 2000, this was like a year after John had uh, gone away that she asked me for the help. And she trusted me for one reason, because John, her brother, trusted me. And she obviously trusted her brother. And we had become friends, Vicky and I. Been to her house, and, and uh, I liked her. We, we hit it off as well. But now it's 2003, and Vicky's calling me, and she wanted to come see me. And at that meeting, she told me words that would really change my life forever. She said to me, John was being investigated again and uh, was going to be charged, it seemed, for the Sliwa shooting and for other things. And she said to me, John told me to ask you something. Do you remember the last thing he said to you when he went off to jail? Now, this is now four years later. And I remembered it because you don't forget something like that. But I couldn't believe that she was telling me that. And I was in my 30s at the time. I was a young lawyer. This isn't like you know, a baseball player who, when he's in his thirties or he's already old, I was a kid. And I answered, you know, well, what did he say? Cause I didn't want to be too presumptuous. She said, 
John told you that if he ever gets charged again, that you were his lawyer. Go see him in Raybrook. That was the prison that he was in in upstate New York by Lake Saranac. So I did. I went to go see him. I was shocked, excited. I remembered what he, John had said, and I was just shocked that he meant it. You know, it's one thing to talk about it in theory, but now that you've got the rest of your life in prison hanging over your head, possibly, well, it's a whole other thing. And I was nervous. So I went to go see John and it was like old times, pretty much from the time he was in my office, except now he was in a brown prison jumpsuit. We sat and we talked and John was the kind of guy, when you went to go see him in prison, he never just wanted to talk about the case. So many of these guys, you, you go see him in prison and, you know, all they want to talk about is, did you do this? Did you do that? When am I getting out of here? You know, what's going on with my case? When am I winning my case? Why can't you do this? Why can't you do that? They're just, they're impossible. John's not like that. You go see John in prison. And I shouldn't say it in the, in the present tense because he's never going back. This is the past tense. When you went to go see John in prison, he always wanted to talk about personal stuff first. He was a polite guy. No one had better manners than John. And he wanted to talk about how you're doing and whatnot. He didn't appear desperate or terrified at all when I went to go see him. He just really wanted to shoot the shit for, for a while. I hadn't seen him for a while. And he was a friend of mine. And then we eventually got around to talking about uh, his looming indictment and they made it very clear. You're my lead lawyer. So hire anyone else you need, but you're my lawyer and we are fighting this case to the end. And again, I was just shocked. This was like 18 years ago, 19 years ago. It was exciting and terrifying. To me, it feels like it was yesterday. And I never asked him why he trusted me so much. He hadn't even seen me argue in court, really. I mean, the first time John really saw me argue in court was when I did his bail motion for him in this case. And that was like a bloodbath. I mean, it was like a fight to the death. And I think then maybe he felt better about his choice. I don't know. I never asked him. I never wanted to ask him. But he trusted me completely. Now, the investigation seemed like it was taking forever. I mean, we're reading about it in the newspapers. And it's going on year after year. And then finally, John was indicted in the end of July, 2004. And it was pretty clear to me at that point why the feds had waited so long to indict him. They knew that once they charged him on a new case, that while he was serving that 77-month racketeering sentence, that he would get concurrent time for both cases. Because he'd be in serving one sentence and detained for the second case. And the feds were so greedy to ensure that they got every drop of blood out of John that they waited until he was about two weeks away from finishing that 77-month sentence before they indicted him on all these new charges, which included the Sliwa shooting, there was a stock fraud charge, and other mafia-related stuff. And it seemed petty to me, but what I didn't really know at that time when it happened was that it was a fatal mistake that the government made. It was the biggest break of my career. Their greediness to make sure that John spent every last day that he could in jail before they indicted him on a case that they were completely ready for, for months, if not years. They had their cooperators in place. Why did they do it? And why was this such a big break for me? Now, John had been in prison, as I said, since he went in on the 77-month RICO sentence. He had been in for just over five years. The statute of limitations for the charges in the case was five years, which means that 
John had to do something in the prior five years in order for all the charges to stick. Now, they could go back and charge him for things that occurred in 1992, which they did. The Slewa shooting, and that was 13 years earlier at the time, as long as they could establish that there was a conspiracy in place, John was a part of that conspiracy, and that was, in essence, the Gambino crime family, and that some criminal act had occurred in the prior five years since they had indicted him. Now, in order for this statute of limitations defense to work that we were thinking about, that I thought of, we had to prove it was our burden that John had withdrawn from the mafia before the five years began to run. Otherwise, the government's position would be, well, although John hadn't done personally anything while he was in jail, he was still part of a conspiracy and it was uh, his co-defendants, his co-conspirators were doing things and it was reasonably foreseeable that during that period while he was in jail, that his co-conspirators would be committing crimes and he was part of that conspiracy. So at that point, we had to figure out how, or this is what I was thinking, and this all came about when I was in the shower one day, true story. And I thought, well, geez, you know, it's five years. We had to prove, though, that John had withdrawn from the mafia, which, of course, you know, just doesn't happen in, in, in real life is how everybody assumes. But since John had gone away to prison, he hadn't seen any wise guys in prison. They couldn't visit him. Felons can't come visit people in prison. So John had very few visitors, very close family friends and his family. And while he was visiting those people during that five-year period, all he did was complain about his former life in the mafia. And you're thinking, well, how do you prove this? How do you prove this at a trial? Well, it's not like uh, the visiting rooms in prisons are normally bugged, except in this case they were. This is how crazy the government was to get another Gotti. There was a listening device that was put into the ceiling in the visiting room in John's prison in Raybrook, New York. And every time John had a visitor, they brought him to an area underneath the microphone and they recorded all of his talks. Even when he was meeting with one of his lawyers at the time, who they claimed later was house counsel to the Gambino crime family, they would even tape him. Why? Because they said he was part of the conspiracy. So these tapes were miraculously made and they contained all the complaints by John, how much he hated the mob life how he was done, how he was out, how he was moving on with his life and moving to Oregon or North Carolina when he was released from prison, how much he hated the mafia life. And I'm laughing when I'm thinking to myself about my pronunciation of Oregon. When I said it in my opening statement, I, I re repeated it as Oregon. I mean, the fuck do I know how to, how to say the, the name Oregon? I'm from New Jersey. Who cares about Oregon? And of course, all the Oregon newspapers made fun of my pronunciation. This is the kind of, of uh, desperate attention this case was getting. Anyway, so these tapes were just miraculously made, and on them were some of the following comments, and I'm going to quote, if we are stupid enough to raise our children near this, then we deserve to go to jail. He said to a friend, learn from me, learn from me, let me be the sacrificial lamb. Learn from me, go on with your life, learn to feed your family and be a responsible human being. The streets are somebody else's business. I'm five and a half years removed from the street. I don't want to hear about it anymore. I told these guys over and over again, don't come and see me in prison. And then a week later, be sitting in Biozone Park. Don't come back to see me. I don't want to see you again. 
Don't bring any messages from anybody. I don't want to know. I don't care. All my father had in this world was me, and I was the only one who could go to see him. And he had me running around for the lawyers and so on and so forth. I got trapped. I'm telling you to be legitimate. Listen to me, kid. I'm telling you to be legitimate. I'm telling you to stay away from these people. I told my mother. I told my sister-in-law. I told everybody else, too. I told them, listen, if I'm fortunate enough to make it out of jail, I'm leaving. You can come with me or not. It's your choice. I'm leaving. There's nothing here, nothing in New York. Smart would have been running away a long time ago. These were things that John said when he didn't know he was being taped by the government. Of course, the government later on said that he had to presume that he was being taped, which is why he was saying all these things, but it was a secret bug and the government really couldn't run away from that. So everything was there. All the evidence was there for the so-called withdrawal defense. It was all there. Not only did the government's decision to charge him so late give me that five-year window while he was in jail where he wasn't doing anything else away from the mafia, it was all that I needed, but I had the proof that he was really out of the mafia in the form of the tapes that the government made themselves. They thought they were collecting evidence against John to use at a trial. They were making the rope that they ultimately hanged themselves with, the evidence that I used to make a withdrawal from the mafia defense. Now, I remember when I thought of this defense, I remember it all too well. I was in the shower. Some of my best thinking is done in the showers, of course, like everybody else. And I walked out and I said, my God, five years? That's the entire time of the statute of limitations. I think this might work. So what was the first thing that I did when I got out of the shower? I called Jerry Shargell up. And this was a different time in the world. So I called him up and I had a question for him. And I explained the situation without mentioning John's name. Not that I didn't trust Jerry, but I just didn't want to bring it up to anybody that I was considering a defense that would require me to admit that the mafia existed, that John was the boss of the Gambino family, and that he had withdrawn from the mafia. This was taboo. You don't say things like this. So I called Jerry up. I asked him, tell me, does this work? I laid it all out for him, and he said, you know, it's weird. But in theory, it works. And that was it for me. If Jerry said it was okay, and I was a kid back then, I said, I'm going to go with it. But could I actually make such a defense in public? It was totally against mafia rules. Remember that. It was completely against what you did back then. Admit that the mafia existed? Claim that John was the boss of the family and then quit? It had never been done before. And it would be hugely controversial. And it was a risk, even dangerous, perhaps. Don't say these kind of things. A lawyer, you know, lawyers get killed. It's not like we're part of any gang. I can't say things like this. Nobody was ever allowed to say anything like this. And it hamstrung so many trials over the years that you wanted to admit that the mafia existed, but your guy perhaps wasn't involved. Or perhaps he was involved, but he didn't do these things. So instead, you'd go to trial. And you'd pretend that the mafia didn't exist. And the jury would look at you like, how can I believe a single word that you say when you're lying about whether the mafia exists even? So this was something that I had to bring up to John. In my mind, it would effectively end my career representing defendants in mob cases. I mean, really, because once I did this step, I would become a pariah in the, you know, mafia 
law bar, if there is such a thing. But in my mind, I mean, look, the fact that I was so young, I think really helped because I just didn't care. I felt I didn't have a choice. I wasn't part of any gang. I I was just a lawyer. I had to do whatever it took to win. As I used to say to clients over the years, if I tell you that you have to wear a dress in court to win the case, you're going to wear a dress. And that's how it is. And at the same time, who wants to limit their careers to mafia cases anyway? I mean, no offense to the mob or anything or the mob lawyers, I suppose, but I felt that I had talents that were bigger than just being a mafia lawyer. So I had to make a choice at the time and I had to decide whether I was going to push this thing hard. And, uh, I thought about it and said, you know, to myself, I'm not the one who has to rot in jail. If we lost this case, it's up to John. Ultimately it was up to him if he wanted to go forward with it. And I pitched it to him and to his great credit, he was all for it. He, his position was, look, is it going to work? And I said, you know, I think it might. And you have to remember back then it was a different climate then than it is now. His uh, father had been convicted and gotten in life. His uncle Gene had gotten convicted and gotten 50 years. His uncle Pete had gotten convicted and gotten a functional life. He died in prison as his father did as well. And his uncle Pete had gotten convicted on nearly the same charges with the same prosecutors in the same courthouse just a year before. Got convicted in two seconds. So we had to try something different. And John's position from the beginning was, hey man, if you think this is going to work, you just go ahead and do it. It's okay. Now, I can't say that all the people around him felt the same way. A lot of them were pissed at me. And I got a lot of calls that John never knew about from people that were very close to him saying, you cannot do this. It's disrespectful. It's not right. It's disrespecting his father. It's disrespecting this. It's disrespecting that. And I got, you know, the cold shoulder from a lot of people. I didn't care. Frankly, uh, even as I said, I was much younger then. And the truth is, I didn't care then, and I wouldn't care now. I didn't care if I was burning every bridge that I had in my career, and I'd do it again. So that's the story how I got hired by John Gotti Jr. And um, as in our next podcast, we'll probably talk a little more about that trial if you'd like. I think it's an interesting topic. And also the topic, the story about how I got hired by Joaquin Guzman El Chapo is a chilling story. One that no one has ever heard. Very few people have ever heard unless you were sitting in that room in that very small, I don't know, probably a six foot by six foot stone room with a piece of glass in between in the part of the MCC in lower Manhattan where they put people that were under complete isolation. That's where I met Joaquin Guzman. And that's where he eventually decided to hire me, but not before something really, really chilling occurred between the two of us. This is Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit podcast. I appreciate you listening. You can find me on Spotify. You can find me on Apple Podcasts. It's on Amazon. You can also go to beyondthelegallimit.com. Listen, let me know any feedback you have. Leave some reviews, all the nice ones, of course. And I will see you next week. Thank you very much.